in your name perform any miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And again, this is likely the great white throne judgment that our Lord is describing here in that day where everyone who does not know him will be judged one by one according to their deeds, the scripture tells us. Ultimately, to hear those horrific words and the sentence of eternal judgment, depart from me, I never really knew you. Every pastor, you've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, the broader passage of which this fits into, and to properly understand any particular biblical text, it's important to keep it within, understand it within its broader biblical context. Um, the Sermon on the Mount, I don't know how long y'all been in this, maybe three or four months, a long time, um, since Josh was a teen, you've been in this, so um, this was right, likely right out of the gate of Jesus' earthly ministry, and in it he wastes no time, I think, in answering the two main questions that deep down, whether they say it or not, deep down, people are asking because God has put eternity in the heart of every man. And so there's got to be two questions he's constantly asking. If there is a God, how do I, how do I get into his favor? How do I please him and appease him? And if there is a heaven, Indeed, if there is, how can I make sure that I get there? How, what's, the, what's the passage to it? Throughout this sermon, Jesus presents many principles that he demands of those who desire to enter his kingdom, but they can essentially, all of this, these chapters can be defined or refined into one main word, and that is righteousness. In fact, if you put this sermon in a nutshell, I believe it is chapter 5, verse 20, when Jesus says, honestly, for I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you can in no way get into the kingdom of heaven. And when he made that statement, the people in the audience had to be going, wait, what? What did he just say? The scribes and the Pharisees exceeding their righteousness? Man, they're the religious rock stars. The epitome of righteousness. They keep every minutia of the law. But Jesus is saying, I demand a righteousness that exceeds theirs. In other words, I demand of you a righteousness you cannot keep on your own. That's the bottom line point, which is why. In the very first statement of this great sermon, he says these words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs and only theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Meaning this, blessed are those who come to me broken and who admit they are in deep spiritual poverty before me and that they cannot possibly save themselves. Blessed are those who come absolutely empty-handed. Lord, I've got nothing here but a resume of sin. 
save me or I die. That kind of spirit. For that person, and again, for that person only, for that person only, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For this is when and only when a person gains righteousness. They can only receive it. They can't earn it. They have to receive it from someone who can give it to them. And Jesus is that someone. His righteousness and his forgiveness for sins. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble of spirit. I can only imagine how difficult and very confusing it would be for Jesus' audience in that day to hear something like this because he was not speaking to irreligious people. They were not apostates, atheists, anti-God folk in the crowd with, with no one going around with a placard saying, you know, you, you people of hate or anything like that. It's just the opposite. These were highly religious, but in the end, going down the wrong road folk. And that road is the road of religion. The road that they've been relying on, I'm going to come to God on my own terms. That's religion. I don't want to really ultimately have to bow the knee. That's religion. I want to work enough to where God's going to owe me something. That's religion. It's the, ro it's the road that ultimately leads to destruction, but they don't know it. So I want you to go over with me chapter, uh, to Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, and let's continue on there. And I think that's at 1506 in your, your pew Bible. This section is the conclusion of Jesus' sermon, and it begins with an invitation. And listen to his invitation. Enter in by the narrow gate. When you read the words, enter in by the narrow gate, write Matthew 5, 3 next to that. Because that's what he's talking about. It's the poor in spirit gate. It's the bend the knee gate. This gate is small. The road is narrow. And few there be that find it. Why would that be? Again, folks, because it's the road of humility. It's the road of repentance. It's the gospel road. It's the just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me road. It's the Jesus road. Well, what then is the broad road? I like to look at scripture, and I know you probably do too, as a circle certain things in the verses it's sobering when you circle what the characterizes the broad road it's wide the gate is wide the road is broad and i the word many is used the many here is the vast majority are on this road and most all of them are deeply deceived used to think in my mind, especially when I learned this as a teen, the broad road was the world. The broad road was all of these pagans going down it. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. And it certainly includes that element. But the vast majority of the people on the broad road are not those people. They are the religious people. In context of this sermon, they are the religious 
lost, walking down the road, oblivious to where they're going. This is the road of self-righteous effort. This is the road of being religious about my religion. Remember the crowd he's talking to. They're almost all religious. And most of them are deeply sincere, but nonetheless headed for destruction. This is such a sobering, heartbreaking reality that it ought to bring tears to our eyes. So let me give you some biblical broccoli that may be hard for you to swallow, but freedom to your soul. It's going to be easier for you to hear this, actually, than to actually do it. Examine carefully what you believe from the scriptures. Always. Because it is so easy to become deceived. This would help greatly. Be in the scriptures daily, regularly, and applying it to your life. So it is forming a grid in your mind as to what to process all the junk that you're being exposed to on the media and in this culture about what truth is. If you're not in the word, your mind is like in cruise control and you're open to deception and you not even know it. A major source of deception in our day, sadly, are false prophets, which are described in, in verses 15 and 16. And as you look at those verses, it says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. So let me give you a paraphrase of this in our culture, in our lingo. Beware of supposed Christian teachers who come tickling your ears, teaching you a lot of what you want to hear, but avoid the hard truth of what you most need to hear. Be on guard because they are usually very persuasive, likable, articulate, and they know the Christian lingo. But deep down, they're only in it for themselves. So then how can you know the truth from the false? How can you know the truth from the false, folks? Follow the fruit. Follow the character. Follow the kind of disciples they leave behind. Are they stable? Are they mature? Do they think correctly? Do they use the scriptures to define their life and their realities? 2 Timothy 4, Paul warns Timothy about the last days. And if these aren't the last days, the last days are going to look exactly like our day. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. That day, child of God, is right now, I'm going to go quickly go through seven false gospels that are attacking the clear, simple gospel message in our day. And they do it by adding to it, deleting from it, or distorting it. I understand it, these, are, these are not 90% degrees off-center. Because if it was, we'd recognize it. The most insidious of these is 5% off the core truth of the gospel or the core truth about the scriptures. They're going to attack what Jesus did. They're going to attack his word. The New Revelation Gospel. This is the sad banana list. 
the new revelation gospel is like, I got a new revelation that came directly from God, giving some new truth that God say, said he told him to share. This, of course, immediately elevates the person sharing this to a greater level of authority and popularity where they, in essence, are saying, I speak like the apostles in the New Testament spoke. I speak directly to you from God, almost then bypassing the scriptures. In the end, they are doing two things very critically. Number one, they're denying the sufficiency of Scripture as it's already written. And by the way, they are completely ignoring Revelations 22, 18 and 19. It says, if you add or you delete anything from this book, the curses of this book are going to be added to you. Would not want their future. The second thing they ignore is the authority of the Scriptures over their lives. Listen, very important point. This is... This is like gone astray in our day in America. The Word of God sits over you. You don't sit over it. The Word of God is meant to adjust and readjust our thinking. We don't adjust the Word of God's thinking to us. It's all backward. We're not free to adjust it, redefine it, or or put ugly stretch marks on it, some verses to make it say what we want. Let me give you a simple axiom concerning new revelation. If it's new, it's not true. And if it's not true, I'm sorry, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. Closely associated, this is the experience gospel and again, I'm not here to step on any of your toes or what you've come to believe. I'm just kind of here to talk to you openly about it. Just have you. The experience gospel is where a specific spiritual experience is the final verifier of truth. Visits to heaven. Visions. Or some whatever that left them in this feeling of peace. Cannot God legitimately come to someone in a vision and reveal himself? He absolutely can. And it's happening today repeatedly among the Muslims that have been heretofore hardened to the gospel. And that's another whole wonderful sermon about God, what God is doing. He knows how to get truth to people, and it may include a vision. But the point is this. Any spiritual experience must be absolutely consistent with the scriptures. The objective of the Word of God is always to evaluate any subjective experience. The Word of God sits over it. The experience doesn't supersede it. Satan disguises himself as, as an angel of light in a number of ways, and the idea there is he's a schemer. He's not obvious. He doesn't go around with a red epidermis and a pitchfork. He is so clever. He is a deceiver. Bible doesn't tell you to fear him, but it does tell you to be aware of his scheming. The principle, again, let the word of God decide the experience. Be a student of the word and grid your life through it. The social gospel, the fundamental belief, social gospel. Man is fundamentally good. It's his environment that's corrupted him. If we can just make a better world for him, all would be well. This denies or at best grossly ignores the fact man's fundamental problem is not out there. 
It's in here. It's the heart. The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And by the way, man already had a perfect environment at one point, And he fell into sin anyway. The truth. This is something to own about all of us. But perfecting your circumstances is not going to change your heart. God wants to change your heart through your circumstances. Only genuine repentance changes the heart. Should evangelical church be involved meeting the basic needs of the disadvantaged and the hurting in their community, you better believe it. And I thank God that you guys are moving in that direction. But ultimately, listen, it's to bring the good news of the gospel to them. We feed them in the name of Jesus. But let me tell you about the name of Jesus. It's a name you have to ultimately bow to. The Love Wins Gospel. Popular, that's the fourth one. Love Wins Gospel. Popularized by Rob Bell and his ilk. Trying to make Jesus more appealing by softening the doctrine of hell. To the extent anyone denies the clear biblical teaching on the reality of hell, such as this passage today, to that extent, it diminishes the need for the cross and devalues the sacrifice of our Savior. May it never be. If there's not real and final bad news, then where's the good news? Why the need for a cross? Why the need for a suffering Savior? Laying down his life for us, the truth is, my sin and your sin was and is so bad that someone, the Holy One, had to die the most horrific, painful death imaginable to pay for it. That's the gospel truth. And then when that same one who was crucified, buried, and rose again, and who now sits on the throne of heaven, when that same one says, he who has the Son has the life, but he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life, but the wrath of God abides on him. He means what he says. And verses 21 through 23 clearly bear that out. Number five is the plurality gospel. You all know what plurality gospel sounds like, right? Hey, whatever you worship is fine, dude. We're all going to the same place. All we're all sincere. So just, just chill, my man. We just all get along. Doesn't matter what you believe or what I believe. We all love Jesus the same. Our culture is increasingly about inclusiveness. Have you noticed that? Let's not have any divisions, discriminations, or anything that's going to exclude or divide. Nothing. Because if you do, that's just a sign of your arrogance, your ignorance, and your intolerance. That what you think and what you believe is better than what someone else thinks and someone else believes. And I absolutely agree, completely. We, as Christians, ought to be the most accepting, loving, and inclusive as we can be people on this planet. But 
and the process of that, the message that's exclusive must be clearly given. Jesus is very inclusive, whoever will, whosoever will may come, but he's very exclusive. Only those who bow the knee will be received. Only those who repent. That's going to come across increasingly in our day as a message of hate, as a message of polarization. And guess what? It is not a message of hate, but it is a message of polarization. Jesus Christ is the only way to be made right with God. He is the ultimate truth, and he is the only way to eternal life. That there is salvation in none other. There is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we can be saved. It is truth that is narrow. It's because it's the narrow road. It's narrow truth that leads to life. And few there be that find it. The prosperity gospel. I mean, I... I could do three sermons on this one, but to, to try to break it down, it's just a heartbreak. This is the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. Name it, claim it, believe it, receive it, blab it, grab it. It is utterly man-centered because at the core it teaches that Jesus exists to serve me. It essentially turns God into little more than my personal heavenly bellhop or celestial genie. If I say all the right words, he's going to deliver me what I want. That boat, that house, new job, God's favor. It is teaching that feeds our greed and self-centered cravings than it leading us to humble submission. There you go. True biblical Christianity always leads to a heart of serving others rather than us being served. It is not that they don't use the Bible in their teaching, but when they do, I want to eat it because they twist it so far beyond its meaning. Taking a verse out of context here and over here and putting them together and piecing them together, always beware of that. Always be listening for that. It's so dangerous. Finally, the works gospel. This is what the scribes and Pharisees were all about, believing that all the right theological things, faithfully doing all the right religious rituals, but somehow believing in the end that the good is going to outweigh my bad. And God's going to let me into it. The good is going to, it's like the scale. And uh, here's my good. Oh, thank God. Oh, the good would be here. <laughs> so and it outweighs it so I get in. Well, I could, these were the very words spoken to me by my 83-year-old uncle on his deathbed. Lou, I just hope my good deeds outweigh my bad if God will accept me into his heaven. And he, all his life, had been in a Baptist church, and for many of those years, he was one of their main leaders. And I, Baptist church, and I wondered, how did he miss it? How did he miss it? How did he miss Jesus? The gospel is the good news that nothing we do makes us acceptable to God. Folks, it's what Jesus has already done. His finished work is what we're relying on, not our works. The hymn writer is right. 
I don't know if you sing this hymn. It's an archaic one, but its theology is so rich. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough. It is enough that Jesus died and Daddy died for me. It is enough. Yes, say it. <laughs> Preach it, honey. So here is the main difference between all religions and all what Christianity teaches. Christianity, religion says do, Christianity says done. Can you remember that? Religion says do, Christianity says done. It's a finished work. It's already been done. Then why are folks so drawn to go down the religious path versus to coming to Christ in humble repentance? It's the pride. Do you know the longer you're in a religion, the harder it is for you to admit it was wrong? <laughs> if you've ever worked with people, it's much easier to take someone who's irreligious to talk to them about Jesus than someone very religious all their lives. It's pride. They want life on their terms, really. So naturally, they want Jesus on their terms. They want God there. They refuse to bow the knee, which segues into our text. Let's look at it again and kind of teach through it a bit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. First of all, some people will take, well, their entire religious systems, and we can name them, we won't. Entire religious systems are built on the belief that faith plus works gets you to heaven. So they will take verses like this and say, well, didn't Jesus say that not everyone who just says, Lord, Lord, will get into heaven, but he who also does the will of my Father who is in heaven? See, you need both faith and you need works. First of all, the question, what is the number one will of the Father concerning our response to his Son? If you think about John 3.16, the most quoted, well-known verse of the Bible, it talks about the heart of the Father. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son into the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but has everlasting life. It does not say whoever believes in him and does enough works to be con as has eternal life. It was all the believe in him. That is the number one will of the father regarding his son, the entrance into his kingdom through humility, repentance, and confession of sin to receive him. His purpose for sending his son is that we would ultimately believe in him. It is not faith plus works. However, from true faith, where there's genuine repentance, will come the fruit of the Spirit, true works in a life. And if there isn't that work and that evidence, it is an evidence. Someone is a professor, but not a possessor. They may confess Jesus, but they do not possess him. Where there is true root, there will be genuine fruit. You see it all through the scriptures. John, John, 7, John 15, 7, John 15, 16. We are not, here's the point, but we're not working for the salvation. We are working out of it. 
throughout my years of Christianity, there have been many who profess Christ but do not actually possess him that I've known. Perhaps they've uttered the sinner's prayer, they've gone through religious confirmation, or for decades repeated the words of the Apostles' Creed. They repeated them, but they've not repented. They haven't owned them personally and genuinely for their own life and for their own sin and their desperate need for a Savior. These are the kind of folk that Jesus is describing who are now standing before him at this judgment. Look at verses 22 and 23. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We can circle some words, folks. First, the word many. If you circle the word many in verse 22, you can draw an arrow right up to the the word many in verse 13. They are related. This tells me again, it doesn't say a few, it doesn't say some, it says many, the majority. All right, the circle, circle the word Lord, Lord, they recognize his deity. James Montgomery Boyce has good insight here. There were times in Jesus' ministry when people would call him Lord as a title of respect. But here, it is Jesus who is speaking, and he uses the word for Lord in the richest meaning possible. He's using the word as Lord Messiah, Lord Ruler, Lord as God. What Jesus is saying, and this is sobering, is there'll be people in the church, like my uncle, who've confessed all the right things about Jesus, that he was die, he came as a virgin, through a virgin, he was sinless, he gave his life for me, I, I he paid the penalty for my sin, he, he, he died, he was buried, he rose again, he has ascended into heaven, he sits on the throne today, he will one day come and he will judge the quick and the dead, he will rule this earth, they can say all of those things, they can confess, but not possess, they know the Apostles' Creed can almost give it to you verbatim, yet it's all mental assent versus heart confession of a personal need for a savior. And can you say, can this really be? Absolutely. Again, I know I may be considered the grandfather of your church. Kind of sobering to be said that. I used to be the father of the church, and then I, when I first got to be a pastor, I was kind of like the son of the church. You know, you're going, kind of going that, but um, that's so I've been down the road. And through all of my many, many years of ministry, there have been faithful members involved in the church. People have been involved in the church all their lives, and yet the gospel, when it was explained to them one-on-one, realized that they'd never accepted Christ. It all been like those little toy dogs in the back of the car, you know, kind of bobblehead guys. I did say, no, yeah, I believe that. But there's no heart surrender to it. Then there came the time when they trusted Jesus, and it was amazing, the difference in them. They were like this lamp that had, you know, it's all put together, wired just right, and it is ready to go. And all you put the bulb in, the bulb's ready, but it just sits there and there's no light. 
but you put the plug in and the light goes on. The surge of power comes into that thing and now it's doing what it was made to do. There's some professing Christians like the lamp. They've got all the right doctrine in them. Their brain is wired to believe right about Jesus, the Bible, and they've heard it all since they were kids. But there's no Jesus power. They've got a form of godliness, but not the power thereof until they come to know him. And when they do, the light goes on, and wow. I could give you story out of story, but I just want to give you one. His name is Warren, and I'm going to tell you how I got to know him. This is recent. My primary ministry is, is with the Navigators, an organization dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ around the globe. My focus is working with pastors and church leaders to develop disciple-making cultures in their respective churches. Well, in 2013, there was this newly formed Lutheran denomination where the bishop came to the navigators and said, would you disciple our pastors and how to be disciple-makers? And so they started a pilot program in Ohio with five pastors, and I got two of them. I was assigned to work with two pastors who were both in their early 60s. And just a few years from retirement. And honestly, sadly, I thought, oh great. I get si assigned two rusty, crusty old Lutheran guys. Set in their pastoral ways for 35 years like this is going to go anywhere. And God had to be saying, I wonder if he would like some ketchup with his crow. Because I was going to be eating a lot of it over the next few years. Both of these guys were so amazingly teachable, but especially Warren. After about six months, I casually asked, hey, Warren, how do you personally share the gospel with people? And he said, Lou, I, I don't know. I, I can certainly grow in this. That was typically a statement. I can certainly grow in this. What can you teach me? I then shared with him the bridge illustration. He starts to memorize it. Over the next few months, I noticed this change in this man, particularly in the area of his boldness toward evangelism. And he, and he finally told me, Lou, as I reviewed the bridge illustration, I realized I knew all about Jesus, but I didn't know him. 35 years in the ministry. I knew all about Jesus, but I didn't know him. And oh, my word. When he trusted Jesus, it was like, the lamp really went on. He started witnessing the people in his church. A spiritual awakening began to happen. There's a little Lutheran church in Preble County, Ohio. This guy retired a year ago. He retired, and guess where he moved? From Ohio. The only place you move from Ohio is you need so much to correct you. So you move to Michigan. He moved to pure Michigan. And he moves into this neighborhood. He doesn't know anyone. He says, Lou, I've, I've left the ministry. I'm never going to leave disciple-making. The guy across the street's a youth pastor. He starts discipling him. Where he goes to church, he met with a pastor. He starts discipling him. The pastor's just, he's just teaching everything he's been taught. And he's on fire for Christ. And he's 67 years old. The next words is, did we not? Notice all the things that follow our works. Miracles done in his name. Even that. Interestingly, Jesus does not deny it took place. But where is their entire focus? Do you see it? 
It's on what we did for you, not on what you did for us. It's on their self-righteous effort. What is missing? This. Lord, remember when I came confessing my sin to you, admitting my need for your blood, blood to cover it? I received you that day, and oh, what a blessing that was. Remember those communion services where I wept because of thanksgiving for your sacrifice for me? You don't see any of that in this text. It was all about what they did. Thus the declaration, depart from me, I never knew you. Not that he didn't know them. He knew of them. He created them. But meaning I did not ever have an intimate personal relationship with you because you wouldn't come on my terms. What a sobering moment. So my question to you is what are you relying on personally for your own soul and your own salvation? What he's done for you or what you have done for him? And my challenge to you as a church There are many religious lost in your community. There are scores of them. There could be even some within the body right here. Pray that they come to know Christ. Listen, can I challenge you? Pray regularly for this. Pray faithfully for this. Pray for a spiritual awakening in your town. Pray for a spiritual awakening among the, among the religious lost and others but pray for the religious lost to come to true faith in Jesus Christ in these last days. The days are numbered. Pray passionately, pray fervently with this judgment in mind. Lord God, we thank you for the, we thank you for the, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for willing to submit yourself to it. We thank you, God, we were fully deserving of it ourselves to die that death, and not you. We, own, we, we just own the fact, God, of how much we need you. Thanking you for what you've done for us, what you're going to do through us. I pray for the work of your spirit in this church and in this town. I pray for an awakening like Warren had <laughs> as, a, as a person that would be in this body through working through them in evangelistic fervor. And Lord God, we pray that we would live in light of eternity, in light of the day we just let read about. In light of the soon coming judgment, we would live in light, giving the gospel, the narrow road truth, and the power of the Spirit, to the glory of God, we pray in your faithful name. Amen.